If you have a Bible and want to turn there, that'd be cool. Ecclesiastes is where we are. I think most of you know that. And if you just want to follow along, that would also be cool. There's kind of a cool flow to just checking out the screen. Well, Ecclesiastes 1.1, words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right, what you got, bro? What you got, preacher? Preacher of the word, son of David, king in Jerusalem. What do you have for us? And he opens it by saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. Whoa, are you kidding me? Like, that's how you're going to start? Like, what's up with that? Uh, Try that. Try that at a job interview or first date or at a speech in college. Uh, Try that at, at your next cocktail party. I know this is a big cocktail party crowd. Try that. That's your opening line. I mean, who's going to Who's going to do that? Who starts that way? Have you ever taken public speaking or writing, creative writing? Like you don't, you don't start this way, but he does. So what to make of, Ecclesia- of Ecclesiastes? I've been uh, issuing the challenge to you to read all 12 chapters. And those of you that have, um, have um, some of you have reached out to me. I love your questions. I appreciate it. I'm getting several. I'm going to kick it to the other pastors. If you guys keep uh, emailing me, your questions and observations, but who starts that way? I just, I don't recommend that if you want to win friends and influence people. So what do we make of Ecclesiastes? Let me, uh, let me submit to you today um, a couple of different kinds of wisdom. Now, just, this is a backdrop for philosophical understanding, and then hopefully, hopefully it will aid you in understanding um, this book. One of my friends over here uh, confessed to her preacher that she started reading it and just dropped it in like the sixth or seventh chapter because it's hard. Remember the structure and tone and the, the apparent cynicism of it all. But uh, consider conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is Proverbs. It, conventional wisdom is what you teach your kids. Uh, you should be teaching your kids. You, you, you received it from your parents if you got good ones and now you're passing it on to your kids. Conventional wisdom is like the book of Proverbs it's, you know, hey, kids, you should probably take a shower this week. Uh, you should uh, learn as you get older and drive and you go places, you probably should know how to change a flat. You, you need some money and savings. You should pay your taxes. Conventional wisdom is uh, do this and you'll get this. And, and then we get a little bit older and we realize it gets it's a little more complicated. That do this and then do this and watch out for this. And there's this contingency, but if you do this and then do it this way, and then you'll get this. Uh, undergirding conventional wisdom is what philosophers call causality. The idea, to put it simply, is A plus B equals C. The causality. Do this and you'll get this. And hear me now, conventional wisdom is utterly necessary for human growth, development, and maturity. Let's not lose sight of that. Conventional wisdom, but there is another level of wisdom. And it's what I would call wisdom after wisdom. And it's when you, you do A and you do B, but you don't get C. You took care of your body, but you got that diagnosis from your doctor. You were faithful and true, but they were not. And the person that they were untrue with, well, they're taking off with them and developing a life with that somebody else. Oh, you led well in your business and you kept the record, you kept the books clean. But they skipped out of town with all the money. 
And this is what I'm calling wisdom after wisdom because you did A and B, but you didn't get C and you were stung by it. And we can get to a place, again, and both are needed, both are necessary. We need conventional wisdom. We better be passing it on to our kids and we better cling to it. You think of Solomon. I shared this, I think, in week one or two or maybe both that uh, scholars, historians, I'm one of them. I'm, not, I'm neither one of those, but I do believe, like scholars and historians, that uh, Solomon wrote a, a he wrote a Song of Solomon when he was a young man and in love, and things were, passions were high. He wrote Proverbs in his middle age when he was really, uh, he was into fatherhood and cared about what he was passing on. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was an, an older man. But in Proverbs, you'll see, hey, it's a lot of conventionalism. You do this and you'll do, you'll get this. Uh, Proverbs 11, you, if you're kind to other people, you'll nourish your soul. Uh, Proverbs 4, be careful how you follow uh, temptation because it can bite you and it can lead you down a path and promises you this pleasure, but it will leave you feeling empty and futile and hollow. Conventionalism, A plus B is C, but we get to Ecclesiastes. And here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying and what uh, it will help us in reading it and understanding it. And oh, by the way, living our lives in this difficult world with all of its harsh realities that life is way more unpredictable than we think. It's, it's Ecclesiastes, he's saying it's just way wobbly. And life, the fragility of it and the unpredictability of it, it can get us. It can get us. Here's what he says in the midst of it. He, you saw how he starts it off. Words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 2, 14, he starts that part of it by saying, I hated life. But here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 3, 11. And uh, you, you know this, you've heard this, some of the great poetry in all the world, he says. And in the midst of this, he's saying that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. That he has set eternity in our hearts. I want to give you, I want to talk today about seasons. In week one, we said there's a time for thinking about what's most important. In week two, we said there's a time for work. In week three, last week, we said there's a time to grow old, which ironically, strangely, was a sermon primarily for the young. And today, I'm giving to you, I'm preaching to you from Ecclesiastes, uh, there's a time to understand seasons. So I want to say a few things. The first thing about seasons is that life, it comes to us in seasons. It's not a, a long, you know, singular period. It comes to us in a variety of seasons. Think about the stories that you know here. Think about David. David was In a, a, a hermit to be in a recluse where he was on the run hiding in caves from King Saul but then he would come go on to be a king himself Moses was a royal son and then became a runaway and he would go on to lead essentially become a prime minister Joseph was a favored son who would then turn into a slave and then to a prisoner but then he would be an administrator and then ultimately a ruler Jesus was a baby Jesus was a carpenter, and then he experienced the resurrection, and then the ascension. All of these 
people in Scripture, all of these lives, just like yours and mine, show us that life comes at us in seasons. And incidentally, we won't hit on this today. It's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But there are desert seasons. And everybody I just mentioned uh, went through a desert season. And some of you could be in that season. Now, number one, point number one, life comes to us in seasons. Point number two, often we don't like the season that we're in. When I was a newlywed, Susan and I lived in South Florida and we connected to a family that we loved and they were very generous to our ministry there at the University of Miami and Coral Gables and we in turn, um, we kind of looked after their house and, and sometimes their kids and I was riding with little Spencer Morris. He was in the first grade. I was riding with him one day and he started talking about this girl in first grade and I'm like, man, you like this girl, don't you? And his dad was really wealthy and important and busy and didn't have a lot of time for him. So I thought, man, I'll, I'll kind of slide into that role a little bit. This guy needs to, he needs someone like me to talk to him about the ladies. And so he said, that he started talking about this girl in his first grade class and he called her his girlfriend. I'm like, whoa, 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 girlfriend? You're, you're like, have you taken her to dinner? Nope. Have you taken her to a movie? Nope. And then little Spencer told me, first grader told me, he goes, but I'm, I'm thinking about having her over to my house for a candlelight dinner. I'm like, how's she going to get, how far does she go? 30 minutes away. I'm, I'm like, son, Spencer, do you think some dad is going to put his little first grade daughter in a car and drive 30 minutes uh, to have a candlelight dinner with some punk first grade? Do you think that's, uh, do you think that's going to happen? And I essentially told Spencer, like, slow your roll, Casanova. And here is, you know, we, we, we see that and how silly it is, but you know what? That's you and I. Like, we don't like that. We're always thinking about what's next, and we at times need to slow our roll because there's a different season that God has for us, and we oftentimes want to go to what's next. So point number one, life comes to us in seasons. Often, we don't like the season that we're in. Thirdly, we hurt ourselves when we hold on to a season that has passed. Strange passage in John 20. If you know the gospels, four men who followed Jesus were close with him, give four uh, complimentary but different accounts of the life of Jesus. And in John's gospel, Matthew has 28 chapters, Mark has 16, John has uh, 21. In, in, in chapter 20, so you know we're at the end, it's it's Jesus after the resurrection, before the ascension. And he appears to early disciples. He appears to Mary Magdalene. And there's this super strange passage. It's John chapter 20, verse 17, where Mary doesn't, she, she mistakes Jesus as, uh, as the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener. And then she, it dawns on her that he's risen from the dead. And in her joy, she embraces him. And Jesus said this, which seems so cold and calculated, so un-Jesus. And he says this, John 20, 17, don't hold on to me. What's he saying? I mean, he said to the children when the disciples said, no, don't get away. He said, suffer them not to come into me. He let this woman touch the hem of his garment. He always cared about people and drew close to them. But why would Jesus say, don't hold on to me? You know, there's something about it's odd but there's a bigger thing happening and I entered into that story and realized that that's Jesus that's God he's pulling us the trajectory of life moves forward but there's something about us that wants to stay where we are or we want to go back we want to go back to a past season hey hear me this morning that season has passed 
And Jesus could be saying to you, I know he is to some of you, don't hold on to that. Always cling to him, but don't hold on to that season. There's just something about us. We like what's safe. We like what's comfortable. We like what we knew when everyone knew their role and we want to go back to that season or stay in that season. And Jesus is saying, no, don't hold on. I have new things for you. I have resurrection life. I have things. And that was a season and you were in that season and that season meant something and it was important and I did a work, but I've got a new work that I'm doing and don't stay there. Life comes to us in seasons. Often we don't like the seasons that we're in and we hurt ourselves when we want to hold on to a season that's past you just sometimes you ever just want to keep the you know get the band back together and that's the nostalgic part in you but that season has passed who needs to hear that today that season it's passed so Solomon before our verse today Ecclesiastes 3:11 that I'm preaching that God makes all things beautiful in its time that he has put eternity in our hearts you know this, but it says there's a time for every activity under heaven, for everything. There's a time for it all. And he goes through, and here's what, it's a literary device. Solomon employs this literary device. We'll put it uh, on the screen, and I'll uh, submit it to you. But it, it's a, a literary device that's, that's used that has uh, polar extremes. Uh, Marismus, it's called, if we can put it up. And it's in this particular chapter, um, in this writing, there are 28 items in 14 different pairings. It's that, um, it's that seven thing that's happening uh, behind the scene. But 28 items, 14 pairings, and he's drawing a contrast. And you know this, we've quoted it uh, prior to this in these weeks. But there's a time to be born and time to die. There's a time to on and on. He goes on and talking, a time to embrace and to shun embracing. And on and on, a time for war, a time for peace, a time to heal, a time to kill. There's 28 items in 14 pairings. And it's a marismus. It's this polar extreme where you're invited in this literary device. You're, you're invited to consider and live in the extremes and everything in between. Why? Well, he says it, and you know it to be true. There is a time for everything. So I want to ask you this morning, what season are you in? From Ecclesiastes 3, I want to give you three seasons that he makes reference to. And the first is a season of prosperity. Whoop, whoop. A season of prosperity. Anybody there, just stand up and shout and take a few laps around the sanctuary. Wouldn't that be great? We're trying to encourage in-person worship instead of online. I mean, we, we love y'all. We're glad you're online. But let's have some fun in here, right? If you're in a season of prosperity, um, just run around and take a shout. But a season of prosperity, look what he says, a time to plant and a time to harvest. Some versions say to, uh, to, to uproot or unpluck. It's a time to pluck out. Uh, a time to plant. That's the hard work. That's when you throw something in the ground, but you don't have the results yet. Uh, you plant a vision. You plant a seed for a relationship to begin. You plant a church. There's nothing there. Uh, you were somewhere. There's, you have a vision of something, but it doesn't exist. So what do you do? You plant. And that can, that's a season in and of itself. But there's a season of harvest that he reminds us. And the harvest is when you see growth, when you are taking it out and going, hey. And the Bible talks, gives us a lot of this, seasons of prosperity. Some of, the, some of the people that we know in the Bible were very prosperous people. Now, we're not just referring to financially here, but a harvest. You have done something. You've sown the seeds, and now you're seeing the results of it. You could be in that type of season today where you are harvesting. 
you were, you've pulled it up and you have reward and fruit for your labor and it feels good, doesn't it? I was reading in First and Second Chronicles, my daily Bible readings took me there and it's fascinating that you see all the stories in Chronicles of, of kings who served God and served the people. And there's a similar, similar story that permeates it. A king would serve God, acknowledge the sovereignty of God, feel appointed by God, want to serve the people, but then he would prosper. And in his prosperity, he would essentially ditch God. And we can be that way. Listen to me. You can be that way. Remember when Jesus tells a story that's hard to understand and he says it, it's easier for someone to go through the eye of a needle than to enter a rich man than to enter the kingdom of God. Why would he say something like that? And different scholars have proposed different theories about what he was talking about in the gates of Jerusalem and, and uh, different things. But at its essence, is there's something that I don't want us to miss. And when, when we get prosperous, it's just easy for us to forget God. Have you known anybody that's just, you know, a good season got them? And they had planted and they had waited on the Lord and the Lord blessed it. And, you know, they, were, they had a, a daily Bible reading plan and that's just turned into strolling social media. And church attendance is really non-existent anymore and the spiritual devotions of their lives. They, they've, they've faded and drifted, if not outright ditched God because of self-reliance, because of prosperity. It's why I don't preach prosperity theology because prosperity is not good for humanity. Because we get fat and sassy and happy and pride become, comes before the heart. God gives grace to the humble, but pride comes before the fall. We have to be careful in seasons of prosperity. We see this in scripture and we see it in our lives. Consider Ecclesiastes 3.11. It tells us this. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. When you have food and you have drink and you feel prosperity, when you've reaped a harvest, it's from God's hand. It's why we're unashamed to talk about giving here. It's why we want to talk to you and challenge you not to give God your leftovers, but to give him your first fruits. To trust him with that. No one, no one drifts into generosity. You have to have a plan for generosity and you have to give first off the top. Why? Because you ain't going to have anything left. And in this giving shows us giving demonstrates god this is from your hand we say so and so is a self-made man that man better be careful because he's not self-made so this is from god's hand ecclesiastes 7 14 he says this in the day of what in the day of prosperity be joyful you don't have to apologize for it by the way if i sound too judgy up here you don't have to apologize for it in the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You know, Proverbs 30, it's the only prayer in Proverbs. Solomon's like, don't, you know, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. If you give me too little, I'm going to steal. If you give me too much, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget you. And so in the day of a prosperity and in the day, no matter the season you're in, give thanks to God. Realize that it's from his hand. And be careful. Listen, this is true probably for a lot of us. I mean, honestly, we're Americans. And we're getting through this pandemic, it seems like. And it's been refreshingly surprising to me. I know there's, you know, bad service at restaurants. And there's been unemployment and supply chain issues. And, 
you know, uh, inflation and stuff. I'm not saying everything is cheery, but I've, I've personally been remarkably surprised. I'm not an economist or sociologist or anything, but I've been surprised how many of us are kind of getting through this thing. And we've been blessed, and there's many of us that are enjoying some level of harvest and prosperity in our lives. And this could be your season. A second season that he gives us in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes is not just a season of prosperity, but a season of transition. Uh, consider what he says, a time to tear down and a time to build. Not too long ago, a buddy of mine took his twin daughters to college. The only kids they have, him and his wife, Carol, they took their twin daughters to college. And he said that they were just not ready for it. I've done it twice. Come see me when it's, when it's your time. Come see me before, right before it's your time. I'll walk you through it. But it's just something that no one ever is really fully fully prepared for. And my friend and his wife drop off their twins and they had you know, checked them in and done the orientation. They stood under this oak tree um, in the quad next to the dorm and they took a family photo. And he tells me, he says, you know, he kind of gave a family speech and he said, you know, we'll, we'll regather here in four years and with your, your, you girls will have your diploma and we'll take your picture together as a family in four years and they he said he watched his twin daughters walk to their dorm and it was a walk like no other walk he had ever seen and he was just devastated he said they got they tried to hold their tears till they got to the car and didn't even do that well and then they got in the car and as they were driving he and his wife carol they were just i mean just tears flooded and he couldn't even see so just like you shouldn't text and drive or drink and drive you shouldn't cry ugly and drive and he, um, he pulled over into another parking lot a few miles down the street. And he said, my wife and I, we held each other and we just wept. And he, after 15 minutes, he said, we, I, I dried my eyes. I noticed that I'd parked in a bank parking lot. That reminded me how much college is going to cost. <laughs> and he said, I cried for longer than 15 minutes before I left. Hey, there are, there are, there are times of transition. A time that you, you tear down, a time that you build up. And for many of you, because there is this great migration that's happening, that Nick, Nick and Kristen are joining themselves as we say goodbye to them at the end of this month. But uh, there are millions and millions. I can't, I've stopped counting. But there are millions upon millions of people that have changed jobs in the pandemic. And there's, there's transition. Some of you are wondering if you should now or you might have to. But there are transitions. And we, when we go through hard times, a lot of times we come around each other, but we, we leave each other alone during transitions, which is kind of a sad thing because transitions take a, a tremendous emotional toll. Any of you that changed jobs recently, like you need a hug, I'm here for you at the end of the service, I'll hug you. But transitions are, they can be so uh, difficult. And what changes, can I ask, what changes? What changes in life? Uh, I, I think the answer is everything. I mean, scientists will tell us at a cellular level, like you're not even ready for, I was going to throw some up there. It's just about your skin and so it's, it's just, it's too much, but like everything changes. Like when you leave here and come back next week, you're not, you're a different person. I mean, you're, it's just crazy 
what changes. Philosophers talk about, you know, your foot in the river and the water. And you, you went to the Grand whatever river or the Mississippi and you dipped, your, well, you, did, you dipped your foot in a different river. And we talk about what changes, but I think we don't really understand the scope and magnitude of what changes. And just everything changes. And here's what, if you live long enough, you know that your job changes, your address changes, your domestic situation uh, changes, your just change after change. Uh, I've got a friend, the season of life he's in, he's got, he and his wife have five kids under nine years old. I'm like, dude, what kind of season, what's, what's your season like? He goes, it's always loud and I never go to the bathroom alone. But that season will change. It won't be there forever. There's a newlywed season, a honeymoon season, which is, by the way, a very short season. Can I get an amen? But there's, all the, there's, there's the emptiness season. But transitions hit us, and they can hit us so hard. And I want to say today, because some of us need to hear this, like it's an anchor. Hebrews 6 talks about an anchor for your soul. Why do you need an anchor? Because you live on a stormy sea. Uh, even if the sea is placid, it's still changing. I mean, it's water. And you and I need an anchor anchor for our soul and his name is Jesus Christ. Psalm 73, though my heart and flesh may fail, he is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever and he won't leave you. Take him with you through every season. All those things, those other things will change. So he gives us a season of prosperity Chapter 3, verse 2. He gives us a season of transition, chapter 3, verse 3. And then lastly, today, this morning anyway, let's consider a season of grief. Chapter 3, in verse 4, you see the contrast, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Real quick, um, I do a lot of weddings. I go to wedding receptions and other things. And um, I've seen some of you dance and Real quick, for some of you, there's not a time to dance. All right, just stop for the sake of everybody. But uh, there's there's a time for these extremes. And while we want the laughing and while we want the dancing, I love both. In fact, I love to laugh while I dance. I love to laugh at you dancing. But there's a time to weep and a time to mourn. And there's a time, a time for grief. If you ask people of old, and the older I get, man, I've become a sucker for this. We celebrate and glorify and worship youth and beauty. But to see people mature t- through the ages, to see, now, someone sent me a picture after last week's sermon of just a, a, a couple and their hands just holding each other in the hands. By the way, hands age pretty quick. Look, look at your hands. There's science behind this. Just look at your hands and, and now you're depressed, right? But, uh, but hands age, and this, this couple, they were just holding, and like, I'm just a sucker for that, because we just celebrated 25 years of marriage, and you know what, like, I would, I, we got a good marriage, thank, thank God for Susan, but like, we got to keep growing through the seasons, and I'm just, it's just a gift, Proverbs 20 and verse 5 says that my kids and my kids, our integrity, our faithfulness, it will be a sheltering tree for them, and like, I want that. Uh, I used to want flashes of greatness. Now I just want to be faithful to the end. There's a time to grieve. When I talk to old saints and ask them, hey, what's marked your life? What are the three to four moments, significant occurrences in life that have shaped you and made you who you are today? You know what these people say? They don't say, yeah, you know, it was when I got that truck. 
Or, you know, we went to the Bahamas. Can I just say that that never comes up. But they say, you know, it's, it's when we had to file for divorce. It, 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 it's when we declared bankruptcy. It's when I lost my friend. It's when someone turned their back on me. It's when the business went belly up. And those are the things that shape us. And it's why we don't need to dismiss the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes. It's why we're taking six weeks to go through it. Because there's conventional wisdom. A, the causality, undergirded causality. A plus B equals C. Man, do that. Give money and you'll see how you'll be blessed. Like, it's true. I mean, while we need conventional money, conventional wisdom, we need the wisdom after the wisdom. Dallas Willard, uh, a lot of you know, if you hang out with me, you know he's my favorite writer. He's dead and gone, but Dallas Willard talks similarly about what I'm talking about. And he says, he, it's sort of the triangle, it's the, it's the trifecta. And this is what will shape you in his book, Renovations of the Heart. He talks about the spiritual disciplines. This is your responsibility and mine. This could be a number of things that the scripture teaches. It could be the Sabbath uh, can I tell you the people that are closest to me that I love and work with, uh, they can tell you I'm starting to take Sabbath very seriously and, and challenging other people to do it. God put it in creation. You need to, it could be solitude, not isolation. Isolation is killing us, but solitude when you come apart so that you don't come apart and you learn to reflect. It's the scripture. Some of you are joining us in memorizing scripture, one scripture per week. A lot of you have given up. Look, you can do this. You really can do this, and you'll see the fruit uh, in your life. The spiritual disciplines help us grow. There's the work of the Spirit. Dallas Willard talks about this. He references one of my favorite passages, uh, John chapter 3, after Nicodemus, where Jesus says, the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going. So, the disciplines, you take responsibility for the disciplines of your life. You're not going to grow into maturity. You're going to live the same old, same old stuckness in your life if you don't embrace the disciplines. So the, the word responsibility is a subword to spiritual disciplines. We embrace it. We practice them. We put them in the rhythms of our lives. But the work of the Spirit is the receiving. It's when we wait and it's just mystery. It's when we, I'll say this with a little bit of controversy, it's when we develop the mystic in us when we cultivate the contemplative side of us and we just have to wait. When the church began, it didn't begin with highly gifted, skilled orators who knew everything. It began with broken, flawed, sin people who were like, what? Okay, you, we, you, you rose from the dead even though you told us you were like, what, what? And then they had to wait. What did they have to wait on? On the spirit to show up and work in them and set them ablaze. And this is what we're talking about. If anybody is in a time, a season of grief, if you're not, you will be. But suffering shapes us and forms us. And you never invite it. You take the responsibility for spiritual disciplines. You wait in a receiving open posture for the work of the Spirit in your life. And suffering is going to come your way. In this season of grief, let it shape you. Steph Curry, Golden State basketball player who just, what, a couple of months ago became, uh, set the record for most three-point shots made. Most consider him the greatest basketball player, a great greatest shooter 
uh, to ever play pure shooter. Here's what Steph Curry said, and listen to what you'll hear Ecclesiastes 3 in his personal testimony. I know that in the grand scheme of things, this is just a game that can be taken from me at any moment. He gets that it's a season. But I love that basketball gives me the opportunities to do good things for people. Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator, fear him, and serve your fellow man. It gives me opportunities to do good things for people and to point them toward the man who died for our sins on the cross. There's more to me than this jersey I wear, and that's Christ living inside of me. I love it when someone is prospering, but they realize that that is given to them of God, just as adversity can be given by God. And this person, Steph Curry, is aware, at least in this quote, I hope it's really a part of his life, in the deep fabric of who he is, but he's just very aware that it's not going to last forever, that it's just this moment. So Ecclesiastes 3.11, again, as our team begins to come up, and we begin to sing and move toward a close, what does the Scripture say? Before it tells us there's a time for every activity under heaven, a time for everything under the sun, before there's a time to build and a time to tear down, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, a time to embrace, a time to shun embracing, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to dance and a time to mourn, all of these... He says that God makes everything beautiful in its time. If you're in a season of grief, here's what God never says. Because if he said it, man, we can throw away the book and just go take it to the house. So God never says cancer is beautiful. He never says depression is beautiful. He never says a prodigal son or daughter is beautiful. He never says that, but it says, listen carefully, that he makes everything beautiful in its time. So you remember we said that life comes at us in seasons, that often we don't want to be in the season we're in. Consider these questions as we close. How would you describe the season you are in right now? You're going to be, these are going to be um, slid toward you if you're in a small group that's discussing the sermon. If you're a family that comes to church or with roommates or friends, good to discuss after church today. How content are you? What might God be trying to teach you? A week ago, Sunday, I, I got a call from a family that I know, and they asked me to to preach a funeral that upcoming Tuesday, which this past Tuesday. And uh, Cy Vance had passed in Brandon, 87 years old, a really great man. And Tuesday, if you'll remember, it didn't look like today. It was gray and ominous, very foreboding, just a kind of a depressing looking day. And I went to Pearl and I preached the funeral and came around the family. And then the, way, the funeral director told me to put on my flashing lights and my bright lights and flashers and follow the, the first car and the hearse was behind me and on Tuesday I was I learned I was reminded in Pearl man there 
there's some God-fearing folks over there and uh, they're community-minded. They, they stopped. We didn't even need all the police at the intersections, but people pulled over and they, they got out of their car and stood. And we were driving and uh, I just began to think, I mean, of course I'd been thinking this, but in 2007, this man, whose funeral was Tuesday, he lost a grandson who was 10 years old. And it had been in the back of my mind. It's really what connected me to the family. I was a pastor at Pine Lake in 2007. Our call time was 7 a.m. And I walked into that big church out there and I looked at my phone and a family I had an emergency. And I uh, dropped what I was doing and, uh, and I went. I walked into this house and a 10-year-old fifth grader had passed in the middle of the night. And as we drove around Tuesday, as we drove around to the Lakeland, 20 to 471 to Lakeland. And I didn't ask, but I, it started dawning on me that we were going to bury Mr. Sai right next to little Daniel. And to see that memorial and to see the rendering of him and to see the poem that the family wrote was just so gripping. And it's why we need to enter in to joy and to the gifts that God gives us. Because we just don't know if your life is going to be 87 or 10. And the easiest thing to do would be to run towards cynicism. To wallow in it, in that misery of it all. But the reason we gather, I say this often, but the reason we gather is to remind us every Sunday, whether we say it or not, is that life is greater than death, that salvation is greater than sin, and that what we see is not all there is. And He has set eternity in our heart, and it is never more. Laura and I, we love doing funerals. We had one here last night. It's beautiful. We love some, some weddings, but it, sorry, weddings. But it, 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 yeah, yeah, we had a, well, they're not going to make it long, so it's sort of a funeral, just just kidding that's the sister of the bride right there but um, we love doing some weddings but there's nothing like a funeral to remind us that he set eternity in our hearts and even the most strident skeptic among us something stirs within you when you see a body of someone you love in a casket because you were made for more and C.S. Lewis, more brilliantly than anybody I've ever read, talks about this very thing that in the heart, every longing in the human heart, there's a corresponding need, a corresponding provision for that need. When you hunger, hey, guess what? There's food. When you're thirsty, hey, guess what? You can, you can experience hydration. But there's something in you that cries out for eternity. And listen to me, there is an eternity. Would you stand with me and let me pray over you today? And would you think of those three questions? I, I just ask you, but what season are you in? Is it a season of prosperity? Thank God for it. Is it a season of transition? Would you ask him to help you? Is it a season of grief? Yeah, there's conventional wisdom. Live by it. It's part of our growth and development and maturity. But there's wisdom after the wisdom when life just does not seem to add up. Remember him. Remember your creator. 
and fear God. And can I say in closing, take Jesus with you in every season that you're in. Father, would you minister to our hearts? Lord, as we sing a song, as we give financially, as we close out the service, would you stir up in us a desire to not leave and be the same, but to talk about what we've heard and to process because you've created us with this longing and we're not built to just sit and stare at screens. We're built to put our hand on the plow and to work and we're built to to plant and then to harvest and to sit with people that we love and look upward and thank you for the food and the drink and the laughter, knowing that we will both weep and laugh and that we will dance and we will mourn and they're both a part of the human experience. Lord, help us to meet you and to know you in each season, each and every season. In Jesus we pray.